0: Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Ghost Camp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ghost Camp by Rolf Boulderwood. Chapter 7. It was early in the season for Hobart to be in full swing as the recuperating region for the exhausted dwellers in continental Australia, where from Perth to the Gulf of Carpentaria, King Sol reigned supreme in the summer months. Still, there was no lack of hospitality, including agreeable reunions, which, more informal than in metropolitan Australian cities, are pleasanter for that circumstance. There was an old-fashioned air about the environs of Hobart, a pleasantly restful expression, a total absence of hurry or excitement. Small farms with aged orchards abounded, the fruit from which, exceptionally well-flavoured and plenteous, recalled the village homes of Kent and Devon. Unlike the dwellers on the continent, the yeomen, for such they were, seemed fully contented with life of modest independence, which they were unwilling to exchange for any speculative attempt to better themselves. What better position could they hope to attain than a home in this favoured island, blessed with a modified British climate and a fertile soil, where all the necessaries of a simple yet dignified existence were within reach of the humblest freeholder? No scorching droughts, no devastating floods, No destructive cyclones harass the rural population. Mr. Blount amused himself with daily drives through the suburbs, within such distances as were accessible in an afternoon. Having been much struck with the action of a pair of cab horses which he took for his first drive, he arranged for their services daily during his stay in Hobart. Of one, a fine brown mare, occupying the near side in the pair, he became quite enamoured. The way in which she went up the precipitous road to Brown's River, and down the same on the return journey without a hint from the driver, stamped her, in his estimation, as an animal of exceptional quality. The metalled road, too, was not particularly smooth, albeit hard enough to try any equine legs. On inquiring the price the owner put on the pair, he was surprised to find it was but £35. £20 for his favourite, and 15 for her less brilliant companion. Useful and stanch though she was, and a fair match for shape and colour. He immediately closed the bargain and thought he should enjoy the feeling of setting up his own carriage, so to speak. A baroche, too, chintz-lined, as are most of the cabs of Hobart, obsolete in fashion but most comfortable as hackney carriages. Before the fortnight expired, to which he limited his holiday, he was sensible of a slight, a very slight change of feeling, though he would have indignantly repelled any imputation of disloyalty to Imogen. But it was not in human nature, for a man of his age, still on the sunny side of thirty, to live among bevies of, perhaps, the handsomest women of Australasia, by whom he found himself to be cordially welcomed, without a slight alleviation of the feeling of gloom, if not despair, into which the absence of any recognition of his letters from Bunjil had thrown him. Moreover, the reports of the richness of the Comstock mine, confirmed even heightened by every letter from Tregonwell, wherein all the local papers, a gentleman lately arrived from europe and touring the colonies now staying at the tasmanian club was known to be one of the original shareholders and if so his income could not be stated at less than ten thousand pounds a year it was by the merest chance that mr valentine blount such is the name we are informed of this fortunate personage bought an original share in the prospecting claim which must be regarded henceforth as the mount morgan of tasmania Mr. Blount is a relative of Lord Fontenay of Tamworth, where the family possesses extensive estates, tracing their descent, it is asserted, in an uninterrupted line from the impetuous comrade of Fitz Eustace, immortalised in Marmion. Valentine Blount, it may well be believed, if popular before this announcement, became rapidly more so, reaching indeed the giddy imminence of the Lion of the Day, rank he was declared to possess, heir presumptive to a baronetcy, or indeed an earldom, as well-informed leaders of society claim to know, with a large income at present, probably an immense fortune in the future. Of course he would leave for England at an early date. Handsome, cultured, travelled. What girl could refuse him? So without endorsing the chiefly false and vulgar imputation upon Australian girls that he was run after, it may be admitted that he was afforded every reasonable opportunity of seeing the daughters of the land under favourable conditions. With the more lengthened stay which the millionaire, Mulgrew Louis, so to speak, made in this enchanting island, the more firmly his opinion rooted that he had fallen upon a section of old-fashioned England. Old-fashioned, it may be stated, only in the clinging to the earlier ideals of that Arcadian country life, which Charles Lamb, Addison, Crabbe, and more lately Washington Irving, have rendered immortal in the orchards which showed promise of being overladen with the great apple crop of the sweet summer time, now hastening to arrive in the cider barrels on tap in the wayside inns and hospitable farmhouses in the clover scented meadows where the broad-backed sheep and short-horned cattle wandered at will in the freestone mansions of the squirearchy where the oak and elm bordered avenues winding from the lodge gate the rangers of stabling whence issued the four-in-hand drags with blood teams, coachmen and footmen accoutred proper, at race meetings or show days, exhibited the firm attachment which still obtained to the customs of their English forefathers. These matters closely observed by the visitor were dear to his soul, proofs, if such were needed, of steadfast progress in all the essentials of national life, without departing in any marked respect from the ancestral tone. At Hollywood Hall, at Westcotts, and at Mellahide, where he was made frankly welcome, He rejoiced in these evidences of inherited prosperity, but still more in association with the stalwart sons and lovely daughters of the land. Here, he thought, as he mused at early morn, or rode in the coming twilight beneath the long-planted elms, oaks, walnuts and chestnuts of the far land, so distant yet home-seeming, are the real treasures of old England's possessions, not gold or silver, diamonds or opals, and such there are, as Van Haas assured me, but... The men and women, the children of the empire, of whom in the days to come we shall have need and shall be proud to lead forth before the world. Here, and in other offshoots of the happy breed of men, whom the parent isle has sent forth to people the wastelands of the earth, shall the Anglo-Saxon world hail its statesmen, jurists, warriors, poets, writers, singers, not indeed as feeble imitators of the great names of history, but bright with original genius and strong in the untrammeled vigour of newer, happier lands. And why is Mr. Blount so deeply immersed in thought, asked a girlish voice, that he did not hear me coming towards him from the rose garden, where the frost has tarnished all my poor buds? You are not going to write a book about us, are you? For if so, I must order you off the premises. Now what can be written but compliments, well-deserved praises about your delightful country, and its, well, charming inhabitants, replied Blount, after apologising for his abstraction, and shaking hands warmly with the disturber of his reverie? Oh, that is most sweet of you to say so, but so many Englishmen we have entertained have disappointed us by either magnifying our small defects or praising us in the wrong places, which is worse. That I am not going to write a book of tours and travels in search of gold, or anything of the sort, I am free to make affidavit. But if I were, what could I say except in praise of a morning like this, of a rose garden like the one you have just left? of an ancient-appearing baronial hall like Hollywood, with century-old elms and oaks and the squire's daughter just about to remind an absent-minded visitor of the imminent breakfast bell. I saw it yesterday in the courtyard of the stables, and what an imposing pile it ornaments. Stalls for five and twenty horses, or is it thirty? Four-in-hand drag in the coach house. Landau, brougham, dog carts, pony carriage, everything, I give you my word, that you would find in a country house in England. You are flattering us, I feel certain, said the young lady, blushing slightly, yet wearing a pleased smile at this catalogue raisonné. Of course, I know that the comparison only applies to English country houses of the third or fourth class. Those of the county magnates like Chatsworth and at Eton must be as far in advance of ours as these are superior to the cottages in which people lived in pioneer days. However, there is the nine o'clock bell for breakfast. We are punctual also, at one for lunch which may or may not be needed today. The big bell clanged for about five minutes, during which visitors and members of the household were seen converging towards the massive portico of the facade of the hall. It was a distinctly imposing edifice, built of a neutral-tinted freestone, a material which throughout the ages has always lent itself easily to architectural development. Hollywood Hall, standing as it did on the border of a river stocked with trout, and centrally situated in a freehold estate of 30,000 acres of fertile land, might fairly be quoted as an object lesson in colonising experience, as well as an example of the rewards occasionally secured by the roving Englishman. The breakfast room, though large, appeared well fitted, as Blount and his fair companion joined the party. Certain neighbours had ridden over, after the informal manner of the land, in order to break the journey to Hobart and spend a pleasant hour in the society of the girls of Hollywood Hall. Truth to tell, the sex was predominant, the proportion of the daughters of the house being largely in excess of the men. Tall, graceful, refined, distinctly handsome, they afforded a notable instance of the favouring conditions of Australian life. They possessed also the open-air accomplishments of their class, Hard to beat at lawn tennis, they could ride and drive better than the average man, following the hounds of a pack occasionally hunted in the neighbourhood. The merry tones and lively interchange of badinage, which went on with but little intermission during the pleasant meal, proved their possession of those invaluable gifts of the budding maid, high health and unfailing spirits, with a sufficient though not overpowering sense of humour. The squire, a well-preserved, fresh-looking middle-aged man, sitting at the head of his table with an expression of mingled geniality and command, as the contest of tongues waned, thought it well to suggest the order of the day. I feel sorry that I am obliged to drive to an outlying farm on business, which will occupy me the greater part of the day, so you will have, with the assistance of Mrs Claremont, to amuse yourselves. I think we can manage that, said the youngest daughter, a merry damsel of sixteen. Captain Blake is going to drive Laura and me over to Deep Woods, Mother says we can ask them to come over to dine, as we might have a little dance afterwards. "'So that's one part of the program, is it, you monkey?' said the host. "'I might have known you had some conspiracy on foot. However, if your mother approves, it's all right. Now, does anyone care about fishing, because the trout are taking the fly well? And I heard that snipe were seen at the Long Marsh yesterday. They're a week earlier this year. This to the son and heir of the house. What were you intending to arrange?' "'Well, sir, I thought of driving over to see Joe and Bert Bowyer. "'They're just back from the old country. "'Been at Cambridge, too. "'I've got a fairish team just taken up. "'Mr Blount, with two of the girls and Charlie, could come. "'It's a fine day for a drive. "'Perhaps the boys will come back with us.' "'Oh, I think we shall do, sir. "'Mother sent a note to Mrs Fotheringay early this morning. "'They'll come, I'm pretty sure. "'Aha, Master Philip, you managed that, I can see. "'Well, quite right.' Have all the fun you can now, one's only young once. So you think I may go away with a clear conscience as far as our guests are concerned? I'll be responsible, sir. You may trust me and mother, I think, said the son and heir, a tall, resolute-looking youngster. So the family council was concluded, and Mr Blount, being informed that the drag party would not start until eleven o'clock, rested tranquil in his mind. Miss Laura, his companion of the morning, let him know that for household reasons her society would not be available until the drag was ready to start, but that he would find a good store of books in the library upstairs, also writing materials, if he had letters to answer. The contents of the post bag in the hall would reach Hobart at six o'clock. To this haven of peace Blount betook himself, satisfied that he would have a sufficiency of outdoor life before the end of the day, and not unwilling to conclude pressing correspondence before commencing the round of gaiety, which he plainly saw was cut out for him. There was a really good collection of books in the spacious library, from the windows of which an extensive view of wood and woad opened out. He felt tempted by the old records of the land, calf-bound and numbered with the years of their publication, but resolutely sat down to inform Trigonwell of his whereabouts. With the probable duration of his stay in the district, warning him to write at once if any change took place in the prospects of the Comstock. He also requested the secretary of the Imperial Club at Melbourne to forward his Hobart address all letters and papers which might arrive. This done, he satisfied himself with his outwardly fit-to-bear inspection, presented himself in the hall a few minutes before the time named for the start of the drag party, which he found was to be accompanied by a mounted escort a distinguished-looking neighbour whom everybody called Dick, evidently on the most kindly, not to say affectionate terms with all present, was here introduced to him as Mr. Richard Derricker of Holmby, one of those fortunate individuals who come into the world gifted with all the qualities which recommend the owner equally to men and women of all ranks, classes and dispositions. Handsome, gay, heir to a fine estate, clever, generous, manly, he was fortune's favourite if anyone ever was, He had already come to the front in the colonial parliament. There it was sufficient for him to offer himself, for society to declare that it was folly for anyone to think of opposing his election. He had been invited to join the party, and as the idea of disappointing the company was too painful to contemplate, he agreed at once to join the mounted division. As, however, he had ridden twenty miles already, Philip Claremont insisted on handing over the reins of the drag to him, and sending for a fresh hackney. "'prepared to follow the drag on horseback. "'Did Mr. Derricka drive well?' "'Mr. Blount asked his next neighbour, "'as he had noticed the four well-bred horses in high condition, "'giving young Clermont enough to do to hold them. "'As they came up from the stables, "'the leaders indeed breaking into a hand-gallop now and then. "'Drive? Dick Derricka, drive?' "'He looked astonished. "'The best four-in-hand whip in the island. "'Phil is a very fair coachman, "'but there is a finish about Derricka that no other man can touch.' So when the all-conquering hero, drawing out his neatly fitted doe skin gloves, lightly ascended to the box, the helpers at the leader's heads released those fiery steeds. As Mr. Derricker drew the reins through his fingers and sat up in an attitude of which White Melville would have approved, every feminine countenance in the party seemed irradiated with a fresh gleam of brilliancy, while the team moved smoothly off. The roads of Tasmania in that day, formed chiefly with the aid of convict labour, of which an unlimited supply was available for public works, were the best in Australasia. Well graded and metalled, with milestones at proper distances, lined with hawthorn hedges, trimly kept for the most part, passing through quiet villages where the horses were watered and the landlord of the inn stood with head uncovered, according to traditional courtesy. There was much to remind the stranger of the motherland, to support the intercolonial contention that Tasmania was the most English appearing of all the colonies, and in many respects the most advanced and highly civilised. With this last opinion, Blount felt inclined to agree, although of course other evidence might be forthcoming. In conversation with Mr. Derricker, between whom and himself Miss Laura Claremont was seated, he learned that the larger estates from one of which he was coming and to another of which he was going, had been acquired by purchase or grant at an early stage of the occupation of the colony, the area of fertile land being more circumscribed than the colonies of New South Wales and South Australia, the home market good, and the government expenditure during the transportation system immense. While labour was cheap and plentiful, it followed that agricultural and pastoral pursuits became, for a succession of seasons, most profitable hence the country gentlemen of the land as in the old days of the west indian planters were enabled to build good houses rear high-class horses cattle and sheep and in a general way live comfortably even luxuriously owing to the high value of the land and the richness of the soil the distances between the estates were not so great as in new south wales were therefore convenient for social meetings for races steeplechases cricket shooting and hunting Rainyard's place being supplied by the wild dog or dingo who gave excellent sport, being both fast and a good stayer. Like his British prototype, he was a depredator, though on a more important scale, sheep, calves and foals falling victim to his wolfish propensities. So his pursuit answered the double purpose of affording excellent sport and reading the land of an outlawed felon. With reference to hunting, of which old English part-time Mr Derricker was an enthusiastic supporter, he explained that, Owing to the estates and farms being substantially fenced, horses that could negotiate the high and stiff rails were a necessity. The breeding of hunters and steeplechasers had been therefore encouraged from the earliest days of the colony. Hacks and harness horses for similar reasons. So that, said Mr Derricker, allowing his whip to rest lightly on his offside wheeler, I don't think you will find a better bred, better matched team in an English county than this or four better hackneys than those which are now overtaking us. Certainly, Mr Blount thought there was no reason to dispute the assertion. The team they sat behind, two bays and two greys, driven checker fashion, a grey in the near lead and another in the off-wheel, would be hard to beat. They were perhaps hardly so massive as the English coach horse, but while less powerful and upstanding, they showed more blood, and were generally handsomer. This might account for the ease with which they accomplished the twenty-mile stage, in little over the two hours in the unchanged form which they carried to the journey's end, with a fairly heavy load behind them. As for the Hackney division, when Miss Dalton and her companion overtook the coach, just before they turned into the drive at Holmby, there was a general expression of admiration from the party, as the beautiful blood mare that she rode reined up tossing her head impatiently, while her large, mild eye, full nostril and high croup, bore testimony to the Arab ancestry. "'Yes, Zuleika is a beauty,' said Miss Laura, looking with pardonable pride at the satin coat and delicate limbs of the high-caste animal, and though she makes believe to be impatient, is as gentle as a lamb. She is my personal property, we all have our own horses, but I lent her to Grace Dalton today, for her palfrey, as the old romances say, met with an accident.' She is a fast walker and will show off going up the drive. You appear to have wonderfully good horses of all classes in Tasmania, said the guest. Indeed, in Australia generally, judging by those I saw in Victoria and New South Wales. But here the hackneys and harness horses seem to have more class. For many years, said Mr. Derricker, we have had the advantage of the best English blood, with occasional high-caste Arab importations from India.' So there is no reason why, with a favourable climate and wide range of pasture, we should not have speed, stoutness and pace equal to any in the world. But here we are at Walmer, so we must defer the treatment of this fascinating subject till after lunch, when the ladies have retired. As he spoke, he turned into the by-road, which led to the Old Lodge, which, opened by an aged retainer, admitted them to a well-kept avenue, shaded by oaks and elms and lined by hawthorn hedges. The house was a large and handsome country house, differing in style and architecture from Hollywood Hall, but possessing all the requisite qualifications for hospitality needed by a manor house. As they drove up to the entrance steps, a fine boy of fourteen ran out and assisted Miss Claremont to descend, after which he nimbly climbed up beside the driver, saying, "'Oh, Mr. Derricker, isn't it a jolly team? Won't you let me drive round to the stables?' "'You know I can drive.' "'You drive very well for your time of life, Reggie, but these horses pull, so be careful.' "'I can hold them,' said the confident youngster, who indeed took over the reins in a very workmanlike manner. "'Besides, they've done twenty miles with a load behind them. "'Aren't you going to stay all night?' "'Might have thought of it, Reggie, but the ladies are not prepared. "'We must get your sister to come instead. "'You too, if your father will let you. "'I suppose Joe and Bertie are at home? "'How does Tasmania strike them after the old country?' "'Oh, they're jolly glad to get back, though they've had a ripping time of it. "'Father says they must set to work now for the next few years. "'Who's the man that was next to you? "'Englishman, I expect. "'Yes, Mr. Blount. Only a year out. "'Seems a good sort. "'Partner with Tregonwell in the new silver mine, the El Dorado. "'My word, he's dropped into a good thing. "'They say it's ever so rich and getting better as they go down.' I must get father to let me go to the laboratory in Melbourne and study up mineralogy. It's the best thing going for a younger son. I don't want to be stuck at a farm all my life, ploughing and harrowing forever. Joe and Bertie will have the old place and I must strike out to get anything out of the common. Quite right, Reggie. Nothing like adventure. Only don't go too fast. Here we are. Reggie pulled up in the centre of a square, on all sides of which was a goodly number of stalls, loose boxes, cowhouses and all things suitable for a great breeding establishment, where pure stock of all kinds were largely reared. The horses were promptly taken out and cared for, while Mr Derricker, admiringly gazed at by the whole staff, exchanged a few words of greeting with the head groom an older stableman before he accompanied Master Reggie to the great hall which was evidently used for morning reception. It had magnificent proportions and was decorated, according to traditional usage. With the spoils of the chase, mostly indigenous though the forest trophies, gave evidence that the men of the house had not always been home-keeping youths. In addition to fine heads of red and fallow deer, kangaroo skins and dingo masks, tigers and devils, Australian variety, stuffed, as also the rarer wombat and platypus, there were trophies which told of hunting parties in the South African veldt and the jungles of Hindostan. Horns of the land and the springbok alternated with lion and tiger skins, bears and leopards. The sons of the first generation of landholders had gone far afield for sport and adventure before they decided to settle down for life in the fair isle which their fathers had won from the forest and the savage. There was scant leisure to muse over these or other gratifying developments, as the buzz of conversation, extremely mirthful and vivacious, which was in full swing when Mr. Derricker and his young companion entered the hall, was apparently accelerated by their arrival. A certain amount of chaff was evidently being directed against the two collegians, so lately returned from their university. How did the men and maidens of the old country compare with their compatriots here, in athletics, in field sports, in looks? This related only to the feminine division, and so forth. Mr. Joe and Mr. Bertie Bowyer had been apparently hard to set to hold their ground, beset as they were by sarcastic advice, adjured to keep the strict line of truth on one side, but not to desert their native land on the other. They were in imminent danger of wreck from Scylla or Shabudus. Their opinions were chiefly as follows. In athletics and field sports, the colonists held their own fairly well, with perhaps a trifle to spare notably in the hunting field the small enclosures and high stiff fences of tasmania giving them practice and experience over a more dangerous line of country than any in britain in horsemanship generally the colonists were more at home from having been in youth their own grooms and horsebreakers in shooting and the use of the gloves particularly in the art of self-defence the australians showed a disposition to excel Already a few professionals from Sydney had shown good form and staying power. In boating, there was a distinct and growing improvement, few of the Oxford and Cambridge boat races being without a colonist in one or other crew. There was often one in both. This state of matters is hailed with acclamation. The great advantage which the old country possessed in the way of sport lay in the social environment. The difference between its pursuit here and in Britain consisted in the fact that the seasons were carefully defined and the laws of each division strictly adhered to. Moreover, in whatever direction a man's tastes lay, hunting, fishing, shooting or coursing, he was always sure of the comradeship of the requisite number of enthusiastic habitué and amateurs. After lunch, which was a conspicuously cheerful reunion, it was decided that a start homeward was to be made at four o'clock sharp, in the meantime, the brothers Bowyer intimated their intention to drive over in a mail phaeton, which they had brought out with them, built by Kesterton of Longacre, with all the newest improvements of the most fashionable style. One of the Misses Bowyer and her friend Jessie Allen, an acknowledged belle from Deloraine, would join the party. Reggie might come too, as he was a lightweight and would be useful for opening gates. The intervening time was spent in exploring the orchard and gardens, both of which were on an unusually extensive scale. The fruit trees, carefully pruned and attended to, were of great age. Indeed, Mr. Blount felt impelled to remark that apparently one of the first things the early settlers seemed to have done, after building a house, not a mansion, for that came afterwards, was to plant a garden and orchard. Our grandfathers, said Mr. Jobauer, remind me of the monks of old, who had established the abbeys which I always examine in our walking tours, for I am an archaeologist in a very small way always took care to choose a site not far from a trout stream and with good meadowlands adjoining, equally suitable for orchard, corn or pasture. These estates mostly commenced with a crown grant of a few thousand acres, such as were given at the discretion of the early governors, to retired officers of the army and navy, many of whom decided to settle permanently in the island. The grantee had a certain time allotted to make his choice of location. This he employed in searching for the best land, with access to markets, etc., in a general way, the country being open and there being at that time no system of sale by auction of bushland, the nucleus was secured of what had since become valuable freeholds. I should think they were," said the stranger guest, "and in the course of time, with the increase of population, as the country becomes fully settled, must become more valuable still." Do you look forward to spending the whole of your lives here, you and your brother, or retiring to England, where your rents, I should suppose, would enable you to live very comfortably? We might have a couple of years in the old country, said the Tasmanian squire, before we get too old to enjoy things thoroughly. But after a run over the continent for a final memory, this is our native land, and here we shall live and die. But the fullness of life in Britain foreign travel, the great cities of the world, music, art, literature such as can be seen and enjoyed in such perfection nowhere else. Why leave them forever? Yes, of course, all that is granted, but a man has something else to do in the world, but merely to enjoy himself, intellectually or otherwise. This land has made us, and we must do something for it in return. Luxuries are the dessert, so to speak, of the meal which sustains life. They fail to satisfy or stimulate after a while. We are Australian born and bred. In our own land, we are known and have a feeling of comradeship with our countrymen of every degree. The colonist, after a few years, has an inevitable feeling of loneliness in Europe, which he cannot shake off. It is different with an Englishman however long he has lived here. He goes home to his family and friends, who generally welcome him, especially if he is made a fortune. Even they, however wealthy and used to English life often return to Australia, there is something attractive in the freer life, after all. Yes, I suppose there must be, and a half-sigh ended the sentence as he thought of Imogen Carrisforth's hazel eyes and bright hair, her frank smile and joyous tones, a very embodiment of the charming graces of divine youth. A cloud seemed to have settled upon his soul, as his companion led the way to the entrance hall. Where the whole party was collected for the homeward drive. However, putting constraint upon his mental attitude, he took his seat with alacrity beside his fair companion of the morning. End of chapter seven.